0: Dash two thousand and twenty four. We hope to see you January nineteenth and or January twentieth, and can't wait to connect with you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent,
1: Hi, how are you today? I
0: am great. We were just talking about how we are both kind of tired because we are Memorial Day weekended out.
1: (laughs) Yes, we went, we drove so much this weekend and we did like a whole tank of gas just in three days. Lots of driving.
0: Oh yeah. That's a lot of driving. Yeah, that is, that's impressive. Well, it was chilly in Kentucky and we went to the pool because We love the pool so much that we really don't even care if we get in, but we did get in and the air temperature was 55 degrees. So we, we were chilly.
1: Oh, God bless. Are you, um, when you say you went to the pool, is it like a community pool?
0: Yes. And it's about a block from our house. So we can, you know, kind of go back and forth if we need to. Um, so yeah, it was tolerable.
1: (laughs) Oh, Oh my gosh. Tolerable is very relative. (laughs)
0: very relative. It's 80 today. So the kids are probably there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is good. So you let's start with a little introduction of Heather Avis. Tell us about you and, and tell us about your family.
1: Yeah. So I'm Heather Avis. Um, I live in Southern California with my family. I have my husband, Josh, and I have been married this summer. It'll be 19 years. We have three kids. Um, our oldest is Mason. We call her Macy and she is 12, although she will be 13 on June 29th. So I'm not sure when this airs, but we're very close to teenagers. Um, she has down syndrome. My middle daughter truly star is 10 and does not have any disabilities or any major health issues or any health issues. She's like a what's the phrase? Like a bowl. I don't know. Like (laughs) she doesn't get sick. And when she does and like 12 hours later, she's like, I'm cool. She's like never sick. She's so amazing. Her immune system is incredible. And then, um, our son, August is seven and he also has down syndrome and yeah, all three of our kids came to us through adoption. Um, and truly our middle daughter is Guatemalan and African-American all kids, all of our kids were born in California. So we are a transracial, multi-ability family.
0: Which is so beautiful. (laughs) And has taught the world a lot because you took your stories and the lessons that you have learned um, in raising your family and in being a part of your family, I'm certain. And you've built this beautiful community called The Lucky Few. So tell us about The Lucky Few community.
1: Yeah, Mace came home um, around three months old and she was my introduction into parenthood, not my introduction into disability. I was a special education teacher. I taught at the high school level. I taught a living skills program that was real community-based and um, just had a, have always had a heart for the disability community. And so, but I also was the mom who was like, I just want a healthy infant and then it, through our journey through infertility and adoption, that stood true. And then we found out about this little girl with Down syndrome who also was really sick. And it's a very long story, but she came into our world. And there was, so, there was a part of us in the very beginning learning about her that was pushing against that idea of being parents to a child with Down syndrome. Um, and because adoption is usually very, it's like a hurry up and wait. You just like do tons of work and then you wait, 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 wait for a lifetime. And then it's like, do you want this baby? Pick him up tomorrow. And you're like, ah, oh my gosh, is kind of how the journey goes, can go. So we had just a couple of weeks of those, of like wrestling with those feelings where where parents, I, you know, there's a very common story in Down syndrome, in a downstream diagnosis of feelings right. of devastation, why me? Um, and if it's in utero, it usually lasts the, ter- the whole rest of the term of the pregnancy. If it's at birth, it can last however long, excuse me. So our journey with that, those feelings were maybe about a week and then she came home. And then for me, it was now I have this baby in my hands and she's incredible, right? Right. And as we um, got to raise this little girl and grow up alongside her, I just felt so lucky. And I had so many moments where I would be in a community, I'd be out in the community, even like at Target or the park or just with friends who had kids. And Macy was always the only person with Down syndrome in a space. I never saw the people with Down syndrome. And I just thought, I'm so lucky. Like, look at, I get this kid. She's the only kid like her. And every kid's unique, but you know, like there's nobody close to her in these spaces and she's rad and I get to be her mom. I felt so lucky. Um, And so in 2000 and, I don't know, Eleven, maybe. I started an Instagram account the year after Instagram started. It's like year two, and it was called Macy Makes My Day, and it was just like a picture a day, kind of showing like this is this is what our life is like with Down syndrome. In a sense, like quote normalizing it. um, Representation is really important. Like creating, just showing that like this is what we do. You know, this is how normal our life is and how awesome Macy is and how rad down syndrome is. And I started using a hashtag, the lucky few, um, because I felt like there's few of us who have a loved one with down syndrome and those of us who do are very lucky. And so I just would say that on pictures and we didn't have a ton of followers in the beginning. And then our Instagram page got featured by a different Instagram person who had a lot of followers. And we went from like a hundred to like, I don't know, 5,000 overnight. Wow. Um, and in those early years, 5,000 was a lot of followers. It is, it is a lot of followers, but right. nobody had millions of followers in those early years. You know what I mean? Yes. And so then it, we had another push and we got up to like 12,000 followers within a few months. Um, and then we just started growing from there. And I noticed on the hashtag, like you can click on the hashtag and see the pictures on the lucky few hashtag right. that other people are using it. And it was always a person with Down syndrome in the picture. I was like, wait a second, you know, like the first hundred or so are just my kids. It's just Macy. Yeah. Um, and then it's like little sprinklings of other families. And then it's to the point where it's like, we were talking about this before you hit record, where people are very familiar with a lucky few. They have no idea who I am. And so I think it's, and, and it's gone on to like, we. I was at a retreat with a bunch of moms who have kids with down syndrome called lucky mamas. And we all together created this that what's now known as the lucky few tattoo, which is three, these three arrows, which a lot of people have that tattoo have no clue where it originated. Um, and it, it just was like, we talk a lot about shifting the narrative around down syndrome about people. It's not all rainbows and unicorns, but it's definitely not all devastation. You know, it's definitely not those initial feelings. It's not scary. Um, and and we need to shift that. And so to connect the idea of you're lucky, it is you are lucky to have a love with Down syndrome, really feels like a push towards that narrative shift. And the community just has embraced the concept in such a beautiful way because I think we all feel that way, you know. We
0: do, yeah. You know, I I agree. I say lucky a lot too. I say lucky when I wake up on vacation and I see like the blue ocean or the beautiful mountains. I always look at my family and say, aren't we lucky? I feel gratitude is something that I feel very naturally. I feel that gratitude luck kind of mm-hmm. um, feeling a lot. So I really identify with that word too. And I think that's it, you know, we all kind of feel it and it's neat that you thought of it kind of in happenstance yeah. and that then it became a thing without really any work at all, which is, totally. I mean, work, but not like it was just shouting worth kind of work, which right. is neat.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. What do you think, from from starting a community like that or building a community like that, intentional or not, um, what's the neatest thing about the community, the group of parents and um, community members that have taken interest in that narrative shift that the lucky few does?
1: I mean, the greatest thing about it is any time you enter a community where there's a commonality, it's like the, I see you and, and I feel seen. Um, it is so powerful that the whole idea of me too and the me too movement is, is its own movement. But the idea of me too is uh, crosses lines and boundaries outside of that me too movement. Um, and I think that's just true. Like you meet someone in our community and you start out as total strangers and within seconds, like I know you and you know, me, and did you guys want to go on vacation together? You know, like, (laughs) it's like, did you guys want to, Did you guys want to get matching tattoos? Okay, let's do it. It just, you go, I'm joking, but it's true. It is true. true. It is.
0: It's, it's even funnier because I think my audience, I don't want to, I have to stifle my laugh or else they won't be able to hear you. Um, But they're probably all like, yes, that is what happened with the so-and-so family. You know, like, oh, you have a kid with Down syndrome. Great. You're my best friend. Um, and it's, so, but, then, but then there's also a stereotype of you have a kid with Down syndrome, you're my best friend. And, and we don't have to all be best friends. We don't all have to be like-minded. But I think that um, there's kind of a, a like-mindedness that happens because we all believe that we need to shout the worth. We all believe that we need to shift the narrative. Um, and it's really beautiful when you find people that are similarly minded to you, right?
1: Yes, it is. And I, I will say this and maybe I'll be like, dang it. I shouldn't have said that. But I, I have within the down syndrome space, I used to say all the time, and I still do believe this, but in those early years on social media, because the lucky few was birthed through social media right. um, and it goes beyond that. And the work that we do is beyond social media, but that was like our birthplace <laughs> and, yes. and there's still community there. Like I think that's where the largest community is in terms of the lucky few being in one space together. Mm-hmm. And I used to, as a social media started to get real nasty, I would say the Down syndrome community is such a sweet, sacred, safe space within social media. And it's growing and growing and growing. And social media is the powerful tool that it is for better or worse. And if anyone's watched The Social Dilemma, um, it's showing itself to be more for worse, for the right. worse. And our community is not immune to that. So what made me think of this is you said, you know, sometimes you meet people and it's like, we're best friends. Cause we have a kid with down syndrome and we're all, we have that commonality of we all are shouting the worth of our kids, but there's also within the community more now than ever, a sense of competition, you know, like a sense of following the numbers, who has more, who has less, this person gets this, I want this. And those are all natural feelings to have, right. Right. but we can't, I like dear down syndrome community. We can't let that get in the way of the work that we are doing. It's not about having the most followers or getting the best sponsored ad or ha- being the greatest Down syndrome organization. Like if that's our goal, then we're, we've lost sight um, ah, of amen. what really matters. And I see that happening. It wasn't happening eight, seven, eight years ago because the community wasn't so um, saturated within social media. And because I think social media hadn't started to do like the deteriorating nasty work that it's become. You know what I mean?
0: Right, I do. And I really, I appreciate that you say that because you are a leader in that community. And I so appreciate you saying that because it does kind of say to everybody else, like pump the brakes a little bit. Um, And we don't, you know, that's social media though, right? Like we don't have to keep up with the Joneses. We don't all need endorsements and all of that stuff. And there's room for all of us. And there's, more importantly, there's room for the self-advocates that we love. You know, there's room for, um, like I was on the board of the Down Syndrome Association of Greater Cincinnati, and we worked really hard um, because we were getting some comments about, um, you know, like, the the rock stars. We're only featuring the rock stars, the people that are college graduates that have gotten married or, you Mm know, went and got a job on their own and that kind of thing. Um, And so we've got to be very deliberate about the inclusivity, even within our marginalized group, which is complicated and beautiful and difficult and easy and, you know, kind of all of the things all together. But it's a life it it is life it's a microcosm of what the bigger life is right
1: totally totally yeah and that we're just not I think that there needs I guess my caution to our community as I've stepped back and and watched it grow in the space is like to to really have eyes wide open to what's going on and to I guess for anything like to check your motives you know like and and If you're feeling jealous about somebody, or if you're like my like the comparison game is going to happen, my kid's not doing this, my kid, this kid does this, how come my kid can't be featured? All those things, those are all feelings that you're going to have. That's fine, but to take a step back and be like, what, what is it that I can do in this narrative shift work that needs to happen? How how is it that I can advocate for my kid? And I have found, and I really believe this, that one of our most powerful tools as advocates and allies is to be a listener and a learner. And so whenever, for me, whenever I start to feel like those gross feelings of, of jealousy and competition and comparativeness, um, I, it's because I'm not taking time to listen and learn to what's, what people are saying and, I'm, I, and being willing to like recognize the blinders in my own eyes, you know? Um, so it's always a caution for me, like a, like a little red flag or, you know, like a red light, like Heather, you need to step back for a second and like make the thing that matters, the thing that matters, which is advocating for our kids, you know, advocating for people with down syndrome, like get back to that. And, and in doing so there's a lot of listening and learning that you need to be doing right now. Not a lot of like talking.
0: Yes. Yes. Yes, it, and it's so hard, you know, because you want to, you have a platform, so you want to talk, um, but I completely agree that that's the best strategy is to sit back and listen and learn until you feel like you have something that is worthwhile and then go shout it from the mountaintops and, and really see if people can take that and make their own perspective and, and totally. kind of tee it into their own um, experiences and their own value set. So as you know, we do a lot, the, the little path that we've carved out here at Ashley Barlow Company is the special education um, piece of the disability journey. Um, and I know over the past couple of months, you have shared a lot in your community about your struggles, I think particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic and educating um, and raising your kids in the special education um, System. So tell us kind of a background or a general beginning of the special education journey with your kiddos.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, I laugh because it's just complicated. Um, <laughs> Boy, is it and ever. Ashley Barlow is slaying it. I mean, the work that you guys are doing is so well, like thought through and marketed and beautiful and powerful. And I just applaud, I just applaud you. It's, it's really, it's been really encouraging for me. You're a boss. Um, <laughs>
0: well, thanks. it's been, you know what, for me, honestly, the best thing, like this is all in my mind. And I always say I'm like a walking executive plan. So the, the content is not hard for me, which I know is really weird to some people, but the creative outlet has been so important to me during this really stressful time in my life. So yeah. if I did not intend to do this as like, Oh, I could either make jewelry or like make some marketing materials, um, but actually organizing the stuff and putting the creative stuff on it has been healing for me in a very difficult year. Um, so yes, thank
1: you. I think that's great. You can tell, I can tell. Like it shines in that way of of you, of yeah, that like you can see your, not that it's effortless because it's a lot of work, but it you just do it so well. That's, it's that's like, nice. huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, um, so you're Okay, good. special
1: ed journey. Um, so like I said, I taught special education. So I have a mild, moderate and moderate, severe teaching credentials. And I, would, I will just say that that's a whole other podcast. Um, I would be a very different teacher than I am now. I love teaching special education and I am, I love special educators so much. I would be a very different teacher than I am now, than I was, um, which I mean, I think in all things in life, yes and amen, we've gotta be growing and getting better always, right? And that was years ago, <laughs> that was like 15 years ago. But um, what I'm in Southern California And Southern California, I would say, we are a non-inclusive state in our schools. And when I say that, the districts that we have been in, and we've been in a couple, are non-inclusive in that when my kids with a disability with a certain kind of IEP, um, with a certain level of needs walk into a school, they are slated into a special education classroom. If I didn't touch it, they would be there all day. They'd come out for like assemblies, PE, lunch, recess, but they're coming from their special ed space into the general public with their special ed peers. So there isn't, that's not right. inclusion. That's no. not mainstream. That's not any of that. Those on an IEP, those minutes count towards general ed setting. It's not, it's not if you're not with your general ed peers and they don't, you're not going to be with your general ed peers if they don't know you and they're not going to know you if you're in a separate classroom. Right. So. You're going to have to keep me, like, keep bringing me back, Ashley, because I can. <laughs> well, I just really time.
0: wanted to, like, weigh in on that.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, well, that, I mean, that that is, you know, the thing that irks me about that when that happens, because I do a lot of cases like that. Um, and in my region, it isn't so much systemic that way, but there are definitely schools that say, well, this is how we do it. Or, you know, there's kind of a predetermination that's made or something like that. And what irks me is that inclusion isn't going to work if the kids in the gen ed classroom, the kids without disabilities, just see the children with the moderate or significant disabilities, or even the mild disabilities, um, that are like in that class down at the end of the hall with the room closed and they come for assemblies. Well, at assemblies, like if my Jack was a kindergartner and he went to the science one where the guy like shoots steam up in the air, he's going to freak out and he's going to look a lot different than everybody else. Mm -hmm. But if they saw him be able to finally conquer a spelling test in kindergarten and they built blocks with him in kindergarten and they saw like his joy in just welcoming everybody to class in the morning. And then he reacted like that in the science assembly. They'd be like, Oh, that's Jack. Like we thought he was probably going to get excited about that. Um, right. That's Jack.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can't have You can't be for somebody that you don't have a relationship with. And so to expect the general population to be for the disability population and not create opportunities for relationship, which our public school system, our public schools and communities are the hub of the community. It is where our kids go to discover one another and to build relationships. And if they don't have opportunities to build those relationships, they will, it won't They will never be for disabled people and being for disabled people and having relationships with disability with people with disabilities is not is a little bit for disabled people it is totally for non-disabled people Right. right like we in the down syndrome community those of us raising kids with down syndrome we could talk for days about how having a child with down syndrome has changed us for the better and made us better human beings end, end of sentence and knowing not just within down syndrome, but with the way I see the entire world, the way I approach every human from forever from now on. And it's all those things that like the media and, you know, all the popular things are pushing for like inclusion and diversity and all these things we're pushing for that. And we're not creating opportunities for our kids to have relationships with people with disabilities. And if we're not, we're not creating those opportunities, we will not have the things that we're pushing for in our world to make, be more inclusive and loving and kind. It can't happen. It can't happen.
0: And you're right. I mean, that is such an articulate way to say it, but we have to provide those opportunities. And, you know, I think, so I am um, I'm physically disabled. I was in a gasoline explosion when I was a kid. Um, and so I have a physical disability. I have four compression fractures in my back. Um, And I always say, like, I feel lucky to have had that. My husband's had cancer. Jack's Mm. had, Jack has had, and still always will have Down syndrome and (laughs) lots of medical things. Um, You know, we've had a lot of kind of perspective building experiences in our life. And I always say, I wouldn't give any of those experiences away because they're my superpower. They make me as dynamic as I am and as passionate and even organized and efficient as I am because I've lived different experiences. And so, but so that being disabled makes me better. Raising a disabled person, just like you said, makes me better. And then being the friend of people with different abilities. Oh my God, is that so enriching and such a beautiful thing. So I agree, but I think us talking about it, yeah, might open the eyes to some people, but it's really that experience of being educated with somebody that makes the difference. So when your kids went to kindergarten, they said self-contained classroom over here. And so what'd you do?
1: Yeah. So um, actually we, so they start, I think this is nationally, you start at at three years old, you're offered state preschool Yep. um, or whatever your district preschool, if you have an IEP.
0: Yeah. And some of those are inclusive and some are not. So it varies, you know, kind of like state by state, district by district, et cetera.
1: Mm -hmm. So Macy, the year that she turned three, our district at the time um, was piloting an inclusive preschool program. So her preschool experience was inclusive. It was, I've heard people say like, like backward inclusion, or I don't, it doesn't Reverse matter. inclusion. Where, thank you. It's not backwards. Yes. Where they, where it's a they special play- like setting, and then yes. they bring the equal amount of gen ed kids into the setting. And there, there was like a huge wait list for the gen ed kids to get into this preschool, so that was great. We moved to a different city, um, and she was in um, a special day classroom, and it was a set. It was a situation where this, because of the school that the school we were in she would have been so unwelcomed in a gen ed setting that it i made the decision for kindergarten to not even try right um she her, the this spe- and it's all case by case person by person you know what i mean and yes. that year the special day class um which would be like in california we would call it an sdc class there's a moderate severe mild moderate because of mason where macy is academically at, at the time and now and because of having Down syndrome, she probably would have gone to the moderate severe class. But I mm-hmm. said, no, I I want her in the mild to moderate. And it was, the teacher was phenomenal. It was such a great setup for her for kinder. It was yeah. great. And a gen ed setting would have been horrible in that school. Right. So then we moved schools Um. and first grade, she, it was like a 50, 50. And this is where everything really changed for me when Macy was in first grade. Um. I pushed for the 50, 50. She, she spent not, it wasn't 50, 50. Let's say it was like, of her day was with the gen ed first graders. She like carpet time in the morning, songs, whatever. And then she went back to her SDC class and did everything else. And she would do the lunch, this back and forth thing. And she started having major behaviors probably because she's in first, she's getting older. Um, But what I was seeing and like my mama bear senses, it was, she doesn't know where she belongs. She doesn't know who her people are. She doesn't know who her friends are. And in the SDC class that she was in, it was K third. There were, there was one other first grader. The most of the kids were in third grade. And I'm like, first graders aren't friends with third graders. That's not socially appropriate. And, and it just, I was like, she doesn't know where she belongs. Right. And that set us off on this, like meet like starting our meetings and the school we were at, um, it Unfortunately, was a battle. It was a three year battle for a second, third grade mm. of basically convincing them that she the best place for Mason was in a general education setting with support. It's the with support piece that throws everybody off because she can't she can't do it without support and because of money. because yeah. I'm saying this position that doesn't exist, Macy needs someone who is schooled in inclusive practices. right Nobody at the school is. Nobody at the district is. So I am saying you have to bring someone in here who is going to support the teacher and support Mason so that she has access and opportunity to her general education peers and academics. Right, which uh, is what Kirsten, the law is. The, is law the law is. Yeah, right. which is why it worked out. <laughs> yes. In the end, because, <laughs> Amazing. And it, but it was so many meetings and so much convincing. And, you know, as a parent, at the end of the day, to have to convince adults that my kid deserves the same access and opportunity as her neurotypical peers is horrible. Yeah. It is horrific. And to leave those meetings, like why, and you leave thinking, why am I even doing this? Like, why would I even give you guys the privilege of my daughter?
0: Well, I'll tell you why. I went to 20 schools and observed before we made the decision for public school. I observed at 20 schools. Wow. And I still landed in public school. Now, our experience has been amazing, like 180 degrees different than the way that it started. Amazing. Um, but it's that gut feeling of will they, do they have the confidence? To me, it's almost confidence. Do mm-hmm. they have the confidence to raise Jack Barlow, to teach him, to have him here? eight hours and 20 places had zero confidence. Yeah, So we went back to public school and I was like, all right, we got to figure this out. Um, We had the exact same discussion. Mine took about nine months um, all before kindergarten. But I remember saying, um, you know, when they give you your baby and your baby has Down syndrome or when you got the diagnosis as an adoptive parent days before you met her, um, you know, they say, you, I'm certain for you, as you articulated, they said, you know, now this complicates things. Are you sure you want to pursue this adoption? Right. Um, I've, I've helped clients through that. They have, they said to us, you know, there, you can consider adoption. You can um, consider, you know, I mean, there might be, they didn't say institutionalization, but they said it in a way that made me realize what they were saying. Um, and I thought, gross. And I said mm. in a meeting. I said, in my hospital is very tactful in the way that they said it, but I was like, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> I said in an, in an IEP meeting, you know, when they gave me my baby, they, they offered institutionalization. And I said, no, I'm going to knock this baby out of the ballpark. So I had two different extremes. You just have to educate him. And you have to do it in the least restrictive environment. I'm not asking you to knock him out of the ballpark. Totally. You don't have these two extremes. You just have the law. And I remember it because it was so articulate when it came to me because it came from this source of emotional power yeah. <laughs> that I was experiencing. Um but yeah, I mean, we met, my parents even met with the school district because, you know, we were trying to think of any angle. My mom had been a teacher. Um, so yes, I completely empathize. And I think a lot of us have been along that journey as well, which is why, you know, I do so much inclusion, support and advocacy and, and lessons for yeah. parents. Um yeah. So then that takes us to this year, which has been um, even more (laughs) complicated and, frankly, traumatic for Mm. parents and students in special education. And you've talked a lot about that, your struggles in doing remote and blended and in-person learning with your three kids that all have different needs. Um, How can you describe that for us?
1: Um, I mean, can we cuss on this podcast? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) It has been... A bleep show. That's what it's been. Yes, it has been, and I, I'm sure, just preaching to the choir here. It's yeah. been the roller coaster of it has been unbearable at times. It's been like I have been the least active in education this year, really out of rebellion, like middle fingers up to everybody. You know, like my kid didn't go to school this week. I don't care. I like they didn't turn in a single homework packet. Sleep you like I just, yeah, yeah, that's just not me. I was just pushed to that, so yeah, this year, too. Yeah.
0: Meet even Ashley Barlow. <laughs> I haven't looked at Jack's attendance, but in order to do attendance, Jack had to do this stupid, like, quote unquote gen ed computer thing. And, um, if I got him from school, we even had to change our day because it was affecting my like psyche. So my husband and I switched our half days of work so he could pick him up because even just picking him up, I would just cry to the teachers and that wasn't working. So, um, (laughs) that was, That was not helping anything, and so if I, but if I had him in the morning, we didn't do it. I'm like, why? What? This is not helping. It's only, it's hurting me. It's hurting our relationship because he doesn't want to do it. He knows it's stupid. He's in fourth grade, and it's first grade and kindergarten curriculum. Um, It's stupid. It's repetitive. He can't pass it. So I end up doing it. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? this. So yes, a a significant reduced demand. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it doesn't even deserve a lot of time to talk about just because I think all of us, all of us were there. You know, my kids didn't have an option to go back in person until March. Um, and so I, I, at the first week of February, I said to me after dozens of meetings with Macy's IEP team, I just said to them, Macy will not be looking at a computer. Also, I'm not homeschooling. So you let me know what we should do. Like, I love it. I like, we're done. We're done. And, and I really feel like, in terms of like, Macy was in sixth grade. So let's just add fuel to the complicated fire of, she was starting middle school this year right. and middle school was already so daunting in my mind. And she was going from a school of 500 kids where I, I'll rewind real quick and just say, we we ended up moving another time, God bless. And we went to a school, she started in fourth grade. It's, it's where we live now. It's 500 kids. They didn't have any inclusive options for her. And I worked with the most incredible teachers and staff to make it work. And what had happened, this feels important to me. Sorry, I'm digressing. I love this. I'm going off a little bit. When we were in the school prior to that, where we had tons of meetings from first grade to third grade to prove that she should be in an inclusive setting, what we got written into our IEP was an inclusion specialist, five hours a week, um, an hour a day to modify curriculum. That is significant amount of minutes. Yeah, Significant amount of minutes. She has a one-on- one-on-one aid um, and we had some other things in the IEP. Now, as we know, IEPs are legally binding documents. So once it is in there, this to me was her passport to education. Right. And when I had a mentor in my, when Macy was real young, her name's Nancy Litkin, and her, she ran a company called Club 21 in Pasadena, California. And one of my
0: favorite people in the whole universe.
1: She's unreal. Ugh. And Nancy said to me when Macy was in first grade, when I was first like dealing with that, we were living in the Pasadena area. And I was crying one day at Club 21. And Nancy said to me, Heather, she she showed me that analogy with the passport. You you're need to get a passport for Mason and you can't give that back. Like once you've been given that passport. And so I feel like most kids walk to school and they enter a school and they're like, here's your passport to access and opportunities, you know, and every kid gets that. And Macy walks in and they're like, we're not giving you a passport because you can only do certain things. And so we fought for that passport. We got the passport. Again, this is an analogy, friends. There's not a real passport. (laughs) And now we have that. And we are going into seventh grade, basically having missed sixth grade. She's going from a fully inclusive environment in fourth and fifth grade with the supports in place that was life altering for her all of her peers and her teachers, her fifth grade teacher and I are now dear, dear friends. It yes. changed her life having Macy in her class. Yes. She never in a million, and she was like, I can't do this. The first couple of weeks of school, she's like in tears. She told me later, cause we're friends now. I can't do this. This is too hard. I can't do this. She's never, she's been teaching for 15 years, never had a kid with Down syndrome in her class. Ugh. So we've like paved or like, I don't know, broken down walls, whatever. She goes into junior high. Now we're going to seventh grade. There's 1500 kids nobody knows her, right? Like she's yeah. got her handful of friends from fifth grade, but they've gone a full year without seeing each other and their friendships were new already. Right. So that feels like, I, I don't know. We'll even have classes together. And it is like, do we, do we just put her into the moderate severe class, mm-hmm. like into the self-contained classroom, or do we continue this fight where her academics and it's academics don't give you access to inclusion. Inclusion is not based on academics, That. that's, Let's make that very clear. Yes. Thank you. However, her academics are so significantly lower than her grade level that it creates opportunities for creativity. <laughs> I was going to say a challenge. That is not what we're saying. That's so, a growth mindset that yes. you've got there, Heather Avis. But there, it, I am so tired, Ashley. I could just start weeping right now. I am, and I'm so worried for her going into seventh grade but I can't hand over the passport, you know, like for me to say, we'll do self-contained. And I don't, and I think she would hate it. I think she would sit in that classroom and look outside and be like, what the heck? You know, like,
0: well, yeah. And maybe, you know, I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you could articulate it this way because I feel like there's a pep talk in there. And I mean, I need to hear the pep talk too. And I, I think, so Here's what I think about that. Every single child had a hard year. My Griffin, your truly, our children that have Down syndrome, they all had a hard, messed up, wacky year. Griffin had a teacher that has this hilarious Southern accent that wore a mask all year. He has no idea. He does not know. He does not know math. He literally doesn't know it. Somehow, I don't understand this, um, but he failed every math test and he has straight A's. I'm not quite sure how that works. But <laughs> he they got through it and that's the victory. Mm. So I think the other kids that are going to be in 7th grade also didn't get 6th grade. There's going to be a lot of reteaching. There's going to be a lot of muddling through. And that's not just this year. Because academically, you know, in some cases like math for example, you go from geometry to algebra. Well, you don't need geometry to do algebra, right? Like Mm -hmm. some concepts they might have to reteach, but it's when you go from algebra one to algebra two that you need reteaching. And if there's two years in the middle of that, these kids are going to be juniors in high school, the the kids in the gen ed classrooms, and the teachers are going to say, why didn't you get that concept? And they're going to be like COVID, remember? Because of
1: COVID, a whole year. Because of COVID.
0: So I think- that schools are going to be different. And not only schools, but humanity is different. Mm -hmm. I think we are going to have teachers that are far more empathetic to kids and their struggles and what they've been through because let's face it, a lot of people in the world have not experienced real trauma. A lot of people haven't experienced real loss. And now we all have. Yeah. And some people did it more gracefully than others, but man, those teachers, the majority of teachers handled it very gracefully and they have to have learned from it. And that kind of perspective building experience that they had trying to do their jobs differently has to have made them have a better inclusive outset, right?
1: I mean, we can hope, you know, like we, I have in a few hours, we have Mason's IEP with her team to talk about and figure out seventh grade. And I, like you, I didn't look at 21 schools for this next year, but I looked at every option possible. And I mean, dear California get with the program. I mean, I cannot even tell you how horrible California is about inclusion. Right. There's like two inclusive schools in our entire state, mm. our entire state. And there's a handful of inclusive programs, but we are a non-inclusive state. So, it's absurd. You know,
0: well, I want to, I want to talk about that. Um, because another thing that you could do is, um, f- so that's a, that is a procedural violation of the law, not following the law. And sometimes when there's a procedural violation, um, and this is for everybody out there, I'm not, I'm not giving Heather this legal advice. I'm just <laughs> saying, um, there's a thing called a state complaint. And I went to a CLE one time through rights law um, and the continuing legal education is what that is. And they talked about how to affect systemic change by filing a state complaint. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering if, if you listeners are out there in a state where you feel like that isn't happening, that they're saying, we don't offer inclusive environments. That is against Idea. The idea right. provides this continuum of placements. Um, and so I just wonder about looking into a state complaint, no matter where you are, whether it's California or some other um, state. Yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah, that's, that's really That is interesting. So, um, I want to leave time to talk about your yes. book, but I want to talk about one um, topic before that, because I know you do a lot of work in this area part of my mission here at Ashley Barlow Company is to address the differences in outcome, the disparity in outcomes that happen in education as they relate to children of minority races and ethnicities. Um, And so, you know, we have um, a lot of different incentives that we do if an organization like Club 21 actually bought the special education and advocacy lab, and then we give the same number of licenses to them to donate to an organization that primarily helps children of minority races and ethnicities so that they can donate. And we are helping to get the word out about special education advocacy. I know you've done a lot in that, um, in that field. So can you talk to us about how, um, you know, how your work looks in that arena?
1: In the arena of like the intersection of race and disability?
0: In, yes. Exactly. Race, disability, and in the school setting, if you have done anything in the school setting.
1: You know what? I haven't I haven't done anything in the school setting um outside of just like what I'm doing with my kids, you know. Okay. Um, I so I am not like studied in the law. I'm very much just and a lot of people aren't studying the law. I'm doing the thing. I'm a creative, I'm a writer. I'm an advocate, I'm an ally. And And that's amazing. And um, so my approach to those things, and I talked about this earlier, is being a listener and a learner and teaching and encouraging people to be that. Um, In the conversation around race and the intersection of race and disability, the only voices who we should be listening to are people of color and people with disabilities and people of color with disabilities, Um, disabled people of color. And if you're not listening to those voices, there's that's the start, the starting point. And then relationship. I mean, relationship changes everything. And it gets really, really tricky because relationship requires proximity. And if you're in a predominantly white affluent space, you either move or you miss out on those relationships. And there's gonna be some kind of negative repercussion to missing out on those relationships that most people And this sounds judgmental and I don't mean it that way. Most people are very happy to be missing out on those opportunities because it's the idea of like ignorance is bliss. Right. And it just, once you pull that rug up and see what's happening and the injustices that exist within education and people of color and disability, you're like, shoot, I wish I could put the rug down. You know what I mean? Like yes, it's hard. It's hard and yucky, the reality of it. So, um, if you're That's- in those places, if you're in those places where you don't have proximity to create relationships, then, you know, you still have opportunity with with tools like the internet, <laughs> and books, books, and TED talks, and Instagram accounts, and you know, all of those things. So, I don't totally know how to answer, how to answer your question. Um,
0: oh, I love that answer. Okay. I love that answer because <laughs> you know something that. I keep talking about is how um, when we address this intersectionality, we need to do it as a philosophy. We can't do it as a checklist.
1: Yeah, that's great. We
0: have to do it as a mindset. As and and the mindset is learning right now, and that is, if that's where you are in your mindset, then that's where you are in your mindset. You have to start somewhere. And so I love that answer. So that you know, we're we're really that's what I do here is I encourage people to sit and listen and to, to start where they are and then to try to move forward. Um, So I think that's really wise. And, and it's an answer that isn't an answer because you're (laughs) practicing what you preach.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true.
0: (laughs) I loved it. That was perfect. Okay. So you've got a new project. You've got a book and I can't wait to hear about it. Tell us about your new book
1: yes my first children's book is coming out this month june 29th which coincidentally is macy's birthday which is so fun um i don't choose well i don't choose the books date the date the books come out the publisher does and if you're publishing with a publishing house books come out on tuesdays um and so it just happened to be a tuesday yeah i know um also to you and the listeners our our lawn is being mowed right now so i apologize if it's like very annoying background sound.
0: i cannot hear it
1: um Yes, it's called Different, A Great Thing to Be. And it stars a little girl named Macy who guides us through embracing and celebrating our differences and the differences we see in others. And she's based off of my Macy. Um, so it is a book for everybody. I mean, it Macy, the character has Down syndrome, but we don't ever talk about Down syndrome or disability in the book. And that was intentionally so, not because those are things we're avoiding. It's just the overall idea of the book is everybody is different. And we have, I, my inspiration for writing it is, um, especially as our kids are little, there's such an opportunity to shift that narrative around different. Everybody has felt different at some point. And that different, that feeling has been attached to some kind of a negative feeling, right? Like it's an uncomfortable feeling. And if we just can see the differences in people, embrace and celebrate them and in ourselves, um, then i'm hoping that it will create a kinder more inclusive world. <laughs> oh,
0: i love that. And we have to, we have to see them. I say all yes. the time there isn't a word for this in english. But i was a german teacher so i speak german and there's a word in german it's bemerkment and it means noticement if you okay. translated it. So We have to notice it and in the disability population, you know, you and I are probably about the same age because our kids are about the same age. So, you know, I grew up in a school where the kids with disabilities were down the room, down the hall in the room with the closed door and it even had paneling, which none of the other rooms had. I thought that was weird like Naughty Pine paneling, it was so weird. And we didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about what happened in that room. We didn't talk about disabilities. We didn't, the kids actually even had lunch in that room. Um, And so we didn't know. And actually just noticing differences without some judgment is the first step to then being able to celebrate them because totally. when we didn't talk about it, we didn't notice it um, or we noticed it and we then judged it as bad, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and I feel like as an adult, there are things about me that are different that when I was a kid, I hated about myself because I wasn't like everybody else. Um, and I think that we've come a long way in humanity in that there is this understanding of, diversity is so important. I don't, I didn't hear that growing up. That wasn't like key messaging in my childhood. Mm-hmm. I think that's a newer concept, that key messaging. It feels more um, global or yeah. in the U S that's where I am. So yeah, I think that, that, that opportunity to see those differences is really important too.
0: So I want to know how you wrote a book. I, I <laughs> wrote this I read the press release and it says that it rhymes, which I think I had seen because you published like a little excerpt of it on Instagram one day and it said it rhymed. And I was like, so I'm trying to picture you in your kitchen with the creativity during a pandemic with three kids navigating special education to be like, oh, I'm going to write a book about being different. And it's going to
1: rhyme. Like how, how did you do that during a pandemic? (laughs) Okay. So it started way before that, but um, pub- the publishing spaces takes a lifetime. So okay. I, okay, the book was submitted in 2019 to publishing houses. I probably wrote it in 2018. Okay. Um, wow. And I wrote it on the airplane and I, on, a, I was coming home from a trip, like a work trip and it just happened. And I knew I wanted to try a children's book. I've been thinking about it. And so I had gone back and forth between like writing or, or prose and I or rhyming and I um I wrote a rhyming book. But I did my contract with my publisher is two books. And so I did have to write my second book during the pandemic and I already had an idea of what I wanted it to be. And that was like I got to get out of the house to out into nature. So I went to a park. Oh okay. I don't think I'm allowed to how much I'm allowed to say about the second book. But the first book we're in the like at the exact time that we're in the process of marketing and pushing it out. I'm in the editing process for my second. Okay. with the editor so I did do that one and that one also is rhyming actually I guess I this is a dream of come true for me to write to be a children's book author this is what I want to do and um I somehow know how to do that I didn't know I did
0: (laughs) that's awesome so you you taught yourself that really cool skill that you've got I think you know I think it's um it's the 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 neat thing about the way that the inspiration comes, um, is just that's very inspiring to me. And the book is so, so needed. I do outreach in Jack's classroom, and occasionally mm-hmm. I have a friend that will ask me to do outreach in their classroom. Um, and there's there are books out there. Um, that are disability specific. But I love the idea that this one isn't disability specific intentionally, and it just celebrates differences. So to me, I see it as um, an add on to the lesson that we could, you know, do at the end, maybe of a, a 60 minute outreach lesson for kids to say, and guess what, we're all different. And that's so, so beautiful.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we're working on a school, a kit for classrooms, like a classroom kit with some little lesson plans and some printables and things to, to have. So stay tuned for that too.
0: That is very, very important. So one thing, this is my last question of the day, and I think it, it tags on to, um, to the book. So you've written and you've talked a lot online about how having Macy, your first child, your oldest radically changed how you view Yourself and others. And we talked about it a little bit before, but I was wondering if you could even just give an example or kind of touch on that as we close, because that idea of different, that idea of celebrating differences changes all of us so significantly.
1: Yeah. My sweet little magical Macy, um, she doesn't fit into any of the molds that society has laid out for all of us. And she, she just shows, uh, I say, that when she leaves my front door, she walks into a world that questions her value and worth. And she continually shows up in spaces fully authentically as herself, uninhibited, and sees you and meets you and accepts you and loves you fully authentically as yourself. And granted, she, there's people she doesn't like, you know, and she's not friends with everybody, but her initial go to is I'm curious about you. There's no judgment there. If anything, she'd be like, you've got a bowl on your face. You know, like it. it's not, she has this ability to see the intrinsic value and worth in others um, that I did not know how to do before her and would not know how to do without her. And it is a game changer because it's not just that I can look at other people and and not question their worth. And it can be a person that I think is just horrid in what they're doing with their choosing to do with their life. And I still have to be able to see them and say, you have value and worth because you're a human being with breath in your lungs. And then to be able to turn that on myself, um, that I when I don't fit into a certain mold or when I am like the, the measuring sticks, my husband and I talk about this all the time, Like, how do we measure success? How do you measure your worth? And society has handed us all these measuring sticks on how to do that. Yeah. And for me, every one of them makes me feel insignificant and tiny. And then Macy enters my world and just creates new measuring sticks. And they're not straight up and down. There's not inches. There's not numbers even. It's just, oh, it's like a big circle. Like, oh, you, you're alive. You're worth it. You're worthy. Yes. Um, It changes everything.
0: And those measuring sticks, they're different. And and different was okay, but then when you really get to know a person with a disability, they're better. They're better. It's better. It teaches us to be better. Oh, that's really beautiful.
1: Yeah. So I'm, and it's interesting too. I know we're going long here, but having two kids with Down syndrome, Mason is my oldest, and she, um, she's not the kid who's going to. She probably might. She might not live independently. She might. I'm not. I'm not claiming any of this. Right. Um. She probably won't drive a car. She probably won't be the college grad. She's not going to be the kid like giving a speech at her commencement ceremony, or you know, like she's not going to be that kid with Down syndrome that you even mentioned here in the podcast, like that yeah. you, the ones that were like celebrating because they're more like us. I'm not right. sure, but right. But August will be my son. August. Like he wants to drive, he wants to have kids, he wants to be married, he wants to have like run a business. He's gonna do all of those things. But Macy was my starting point and having both of them, it's like both of you are magic as you are. I don't need Mason to have better speech. I don't need her to be able to read better or do all these different things. Um, Who she is is enough, period, full stop. And August is doing all those things. You know, like he's gonna do all those things it doesn't make him better than Mason it makes him right. August and I just am grateful for that experience um, because we've again another caution to our community there's not a best way to have Down syndrome you know yes. and we and we need to make sure that we're not feeding that narrative of if you have this if you're this way with Down syndrome then you're better oh, or
0: thank you right yes. I can't
1: feed that so I'm I'm so grateful for my experience with my two kiddos because they've taught me, They've just taught me so much. We could do a whole podcast on what our kids have taught us, right? The I know, series. well, I know that you actually do
0: do a whole podcast on that. So thank you for boiling it down. I just thought it was such a nice transition and a great way to end. So thank you so much thank for You, Ashley. Yes, thank you. And we'll we'll have you back. Will you come back and share more wisdom?
1: Anytime. I would love to and thanks for your wisdom too. We'll I'll be we'll be in touch for on a personal level.
0: For sure. <laughs> for sure.